Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Welcome back, everybody, for part two of the Business of Anesthesia with uh, Joe Rodriguez. We will continue from here with our discussion about contracts, how to get them, what happens with contracts, and the value of anesthesia. Thank you so much. Here we go. We're going through this pandemic, and we're probably in the two-thirds of the way through this thing. Hospitals don't have the money to spend on things that just don't make sense. And and ultimately, you know, people can say, you know, cost shouldn't matter, but but they're fooling themselves, right? Because cost matters in their daily lives no different than it matters in a hospital's daily life. They have to be uh, fiscally responsible just as you have to be at home or you suffer the consequences. The hospitals close. I mean, look at all the rural hospitals that shut down, even some of the larger ones that have shut down. And all this is because of either bad fiscal management, a change in the economic picture of the patients coming in commercial versus private versus no pay. Um you know, or a decrease in volume, the biggest, you know, employer in the town leaves and everyone moves out. But the most primary cause is probably bad fiscal management overall. And so, you know, it's not just about saving money for the OR. You know, there's a finite, there's a, there's a pot with so much money in it for the hospital. And out of that pot, everything must be paid. But that includes meeting the needs of the community, right? All hospitals have a mission that one way or another states that they will meet the needs of the community and their members. And, you know, in our first, in our particular example here, the ability to have an all CRNA practice that, um, you know, we don't charge millions of dollars in subsidies to maintain higher salaries, uh, you know, that ultimately allows the hospital to do things like build a surgery center, build a surgery center, build a cancer center, yep. hire in cancer oncologists to take care of patients in an area that otherwise mm-hmm. would have to travel three hours to get to them. So it doesn't mean that they're saving money from patients and it's going into the board of directors pockets in some way, which I think is what people seem to assume the hospital just makes more money, but the vast majority of facilities are nonprofit or not for profit. And so all that money has to then pool back into the system in some way. And that only helps the community. Is it really worth it to have two people, a physician anesthesiologist and a nurse anesthesiologist doing one job, or should we, Shift that resource. We're not making it cheaper. We're just shifting the resource and the model equally as effective, same outcomes, and have two oncologists that you otherwise wouldn't have to take care of patients with cancer in your community. That's a, that's a value equation right there, right? Like, you know, what's the value of having someone sit in an office while four other people do anesthesia and everyone's trained to do it? Well, the person sitting in the office, while maybe great at anesthesia, we're wasting their skills. They should be in the operating room performing right. anesthesia and the ultimate value for physician anesthesiologists after all those years of training, you know, just like nurse anesthesiologists is to be in the operating room doing anesthesia. Now, that's not to say that there's anything wrong with physician anesthesiologists becoming administrators and moving up in the hospital hierarchy. That's totally acceptable sure. because they provide, I think, a unique insight into the operating room. But the truth of the matter is, is the average physician anesthesiologist, just like the average CRNA, is never going to do any of that. So where, who's best served? How are patients, facilities, communities, and ultimately fiscal responsibility and access to care best served? And it's best served by everyone doing the job they train for. 
everyone doing anesthesia, right? Yeah. And there's, and this is why I love business because business owners, business leaders, people who are out in the contract market hustling and staying up till midnight and then waking up at five, right? We, we operate right at the axis where all these things occur, right? Where you can take these regulatory changes and put it right into practice and benefit the communities that you're talking about. And a lot of times when we talk about cost, value, numbers, it's fairly abstract. Right. So when we took over one particular surgery center at a place about 90 minutes outside of Phoenix, their MD only group had left due to economic concerns, which is not a value judgment. It's, it's just an observation of fact. Right. That was what they were dealing with. They were looking at, you know, are we going to have to cut down on days of services, which then for their employees, right? I'm thinking of one in particular named Sarah, young Hispanic woman with kids, right? Well, their response was, Hey, I can't go part-time. I need this job. I need to be X amount of days per week. If we do that, I'm going to have to go elsewhere, right? So then the surgery center is under even more economic pressure. Now they're losing staff. They might not be able to provide services. These people might not have their jobs where they're living paycheck to paycheck, right? And when I I went into that center and I met these people and I actually moved to that community and got to know them, that's where I realized this is a human problem, right? This is all this advocacy stuff. People just, they kind of, um, delegitimize it by saying, well, this is just all about money, right? Well, no, it's not about money. It's about people's lives and improving their lives, right? So when we talk about cost, that's what we're trying to do. And the other aspect, um, why you were speaking, I thought of, was that higher costs do not always equal greater value, right? So in some of the Right. So in some of these places that we've taken over, gone and changed models, either from, and, you know, let's be honest, there's crappy MDs, there's crappy CRNAs out there. Let's just put it in terms like they had a bad anesthesia delivery system and our group came in, different culture, right, much more service oriented, lowered the cost. But because of the clinical protocols we put in place and the culture we brought, their outcomes actually improved. So they were paying less and getting more, even though the other, the previous group, was more MD heavy and more, and again, that is, I'm not trying to criticize, I, I hate the whole turf war thing. Um, I, you know, I just want everybody to be creating value. So, um, yeah, higher costs do not equate to greater value in all circumstances. Well, I totally agree with that. And you know, there's, there's, there's three sides to the value equation there's the facility side, there's the group owner contract holder side. And then there's the employee or contractor side that works for the group or for the hospital. And, and, you know, just to follow through on that, the hospital side, we were just talking about it. You know, what does a hospital ultimately want for value? And what they, what they really want is they want all the service at a reasonable price that's consistent. And then the last part of that is surgeons and patients are happy, specifically surgeons because they're revenue generators. Right. So needs are being met. You're you're decreasing the same day cancellations because you've done a good job of setting up protocols that stop the most cost ineffective thing that can ever happen in the OR, which is same day cancellations. Right. Because now mm-hmm. everyone pays for that. The facility has a space that could have been filled by another uh, surgery, but that's not happening now. Now you're in a rush to try and move things up, but you really never get it up like you could have had you just yep. put someone in that slot. You've got nurses and techs and anesthesia and surgeons and administrators standing around, possibly a room partially open that now the stuff might have to be thrown away. Lots of costs there. All those kind of protocol work, they that the facility 
I don't know that they ever really consider that as much, but they consider the same day uh, surgery cancellation is a big deal. So if you can put in protocols, you can save them money. And if you get fat and happy in a facility and stop advancing care and the service, ultimately you will lose that contract. That's how facilities see things, right? I mean, it's, it's fallacy to think that a facility is necessarily loyal to a group. Um, you know right. what they're, what they're loyal, they're loyal to, to their mission. They're loyal to their mission. Exactly. So ultimately yep. they're looking at saying, well, look, what's cost effective, expands access to care, decreases our same day surgery cancellation. Surgeons are happy reasonably, right? Because surgeons are never happy when cases are canceled. I get it. They have, they, it's really their patients. So they have a personal relationship, but if it was my mom and I wouldn't do the surgery, then I won't do it for someone else's mom. Right. And, and so that's an acceptable upsetness <laughs> in that regard. Right. Um, right. And ultimately, that's what hospitals want and surgery centers. And they want efficiency from anesthesia. I mean, we can't control what the OR techs and nurses do or, you know, any of that stuff. But what we can control is how efficient our group is. If you're spending 20 minutes to do a block and you've delayed the case by 10, there's a problem there. And so hospitals are going to want you to change that. That's the value equation for the facility. Uh, Can you think other things from, uh, you know, facilities that you've dealt with that they consider as part of the value equation looking at anesthesia groups? Yeah. Well, two, two points come to mind when you're discussing that. To answer your question specifically, uh, there are, look, like you said earlier, when, when your customer says, I want X, your job ultimately, as long as it's legal and ethical, is to deliver that, right? right. So we have run in the facilities where they say, guys, you're amazing. Your outcomes are great. We love working with you, but we want an MD here. Period. Yep. And that's the end of, that's the end of the discussion. So, in addition to all the quality, et cetera, et cetera, that's just a perception reality. And look, that can be for a thousand different reasons. And as long as the economics work, it's your job to deliver that. And, and as long as it's consistent with your values. Now, for us, you know, if somebody said, we want you to establish a medical direction program, you know, we would obviously have a discussion and say, well, you know, there's these uh, compliance concerns. There's these fraud concerns. There's cultural concerns because it kind of generate it can generate a lot of tension between professionals so for all these reasons you think it's a really bad idea and, I, and just so your audience knows no one's ever said that to us right i don't think hospitals and surgeons really care about no. that aspect of things that much they they want what you want you all mentioned right consistency efficiency reliability um and don't be a dick yeah also <laughs> that <laughs> um so those, you know, when, when a customer says that's what you want, then you have to go out and give it, right? So that's one thing when hospitals, specifically hospitals, I think it's more common. That's something, you know, you, got, you just got to figure out a way to do it. Right. And, and as you mentioned, you know, if they want a physician anesthesiologist, that's a cultural change that would have to occur or it isn't. You know, because ultimately, as 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 much as you and I and many others here in Arizona and across the country have tried to have 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 successfully changed uh, statute and regulation sure, sure. to to allow CRNAs to compete on a level playing field, yeah. we all support one thing for sure: remove barriers to facilities choosing what they want for their community patients, surgeons, and staff. Right. So if they want an all MD practice, I've got no problem with that. In fact, I see nothing wrong with it at all. They just have to afford it. Right. And, and then right. there's a cost that comes with that. It's, it's clear that anesthesia, anesthesiology as a profession ha- is approaching six Sigma safety. Everyone's safe. Physicians, mm-hmm. CRNAs, mm-hmm. 
AAs. Everybody's safe in you know in their scope of practice, and you know physicians do a great job. There's certainly nothing negative to be said about them clinically. You know, great training, great job. And if a facility wants just that, that's appropriate and acceptable. You know, it's not wrong. It's not bad. If they want an anesthesia care team because they have a perceptual opinion, or their surgeons just say they want physician anesthesiologists, there's nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. either. But what has to be understood is cost and risk comes with that. Cost comes with the uh, MD-only practice. That's the most expensive model. Cost and risk comes with a medical medical direction anesthesia care team because of TEFRA rules and the risk of fraud constantly. But it also decreases service because as as much as it seems like, oh, you got one physician for four CRNAs, if there's a fifth room that could be open, you have a, uh, uh, but you don't have another physician anesthesiologist, another person that can just go in it. Well, then you're not going to open that fifth room that decreases efficiency, ultimately harms patients, delays their care, ultimately harms the facility's finances, and ultimately costs everybody, right? And it's not good for surgeons. They're pissed. Right. And uh, the, the problem is, is you do have a fifth provider, the physician anesthesiologist, but because you're doing a medical direction model, you can't put them in a room to work. Right. So- you know, that's where inefficiency comes in. But if a hospital is willing to take those risks and decrease the efficiency for the benefit of, ha- in their minds, the perceptual benefit of having an anesthesia care team, nothing wrong with that. It, you know, I, I think that one thing that gets lost in these, you know, political um, battles that occur in every state across the country is that my ultimate goal is to eliminate barriers to compete on a level playing field. I don't care what the customer wants. If they want all physicians, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you create barriers that don't allow them to choose anything but something like that, right. that's wrong. And that's right? what ultimately that's anti-competitive. Yeah, that's what the supervision debate is really about. Because at the it's what it's about. You, you said that you know anesthesia is safe, right? And why you have vastly different skill sets between practitioners, and yet anesthesia by and large is safe. Why is that? Because right. practice is controlled at the local level, right? If you have a right, that's what credentialing committees are for. Right. That's why they ask you for case logs. You know, if you ask for credentials, I just keep using heart surgery because, you know, perceptually that's the most, and it certainly is very advanced, right? If you ask for credentials to do heart surgery, um, they're going to make sure you're competent in heart surgery, right? That happens at the local level, regardless of what your legal scope of practice is. And that's why we haven't seen any uptick of mortality and morbidity in any of these opt out states or non non statutory supervision states, et cetera. I want to make one more comment on, you know, we talked about how a lot of these anesthesia groups, right, the formula isn't hard, right? Provide good service, get great outcomes. Everybody, every right. anesthesia group is doing that. The question is, how well can you manage it, right? I'll give you another example from the business world. The, probably the best example is the thing that everyone's wearing on their shoes. Uh, everyone's wearing on their feet right now, which is shoes, right? Shoes are a commodity. There's nothing special about shoes. There's nothing special about sneakers, right? The things that that business thrives on, even a commodity business, are two things. Brand, right? When you put on that Nike shoe, how do you feel, right? And when you go to work every day for whomever you work for, how do they make you feel? That's part one. And the other part of it is how well is your business managed, right? How low can you drive your costs and manage economy? Can you even create? economies of scale, right? So for people who are getting into the business stuff, that's, those are things they have to be aware of. And for the people who are in the employment or the subcontractor market, that's the question you have to ask yourself. Who do you want to align with? Because 
again, you know, there's a lot of regional variability in compensation, but there's there's not, uh, you know, CRNA is making 100 grand in Texas and a million in Vermont. It's not that big of a spread, right? Right. So these are the other things you have to consider. And certainly, you know, our group is trying to make, you know, substantial investments, especially on the management end, to provide a good service. And this is something that goes along with culture and philosophy, which is how do you perceive the providers in your firm, right? Are they only looked at as a cost or are you looked at as an actual team? Are you looked at as some, as this entity that can go out and do great things in the community? That's a very different approach and it results in all these different decisions that, that impact the provider. So those are the, what things that come to mind when you're talking about what anesthesia groups generally do. Yeah, and I think I think that's part of why some large anesthesia management companies fail because they see, you know, I mean, if you look at an anesthesia company, a management company, their largest cost is one thing, it's labor, right? So, oh, yeah, 90%. You know, yeah, it's easily 90%. So, you know, on they look at every individual person who's sucking money from the pot as yeah. a, a number on the spreadsheet that's in the a negative. Problem to be solved. It's a problem to be solved. How do we lower these people's wages? How do we, you know, get them to do more for the same amount of money? Maybe they we change it to 12 hours just from 10, but we pay them the same flat right. rate. I mean, that's what they're constantly looking to do. And the difference between smaller companies like yours, like mine, like many others, and large, large companies like that is that we don't have investors asking for quarter-on-quarter increased profit margins that have only invested in this company as venture capitalists looking to get their money out of it. And, right. uh, and then some, right. And so they have a, these large companies that are massive, have this intense pressure and all you've really done, you've not added quality. You've not added capability. You've not added any of these things. You may add a very flashy presentation. Uh, but, but all you've really done is add a third person taking money from the finite pot and yep. that money has to come from somewhere. And there's only one place where all the money goes that isn't revenue. And that's the labor cost. So. There's always from those large companies a, a, a acrimonious appears to be an acrimonious relationship from people I talk all over the country between their employees or contractors and the company because you know one's always trying to you know, always trying to screw them and the other one feels like they're always trying to be screwed and so there's this feeling that you know you're always on the chopping block and is it going to be next month that they're going to cut your education uh, money or is it going to be 6 months from now but you know it's coming because they need it they've already said that they're having a rough time financially you know and and that's a difference and that brings us right into what's the value of the employee you know that's one of the three parts of the triangle of value well if you're an employee or a contractor part of value it's 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 not even it's not even money I mean, everyone expects to be paid well, right? And every practice is, is paying somewhere within the range of, of typical. Um, but one thing that pays dividends that uh, I saw when I was an RN in the hospital and then saw go away and saw the attitude change is how the employer reacts, responds, and rewards the employee. You know, and I don't mean in cash, but when you stay an extra two hours over past your shift, when you were an RN and they gave you movie tickets, that meant something to you. You know, when you were recognized at a meeting for going above and beyond, even though you didn't get paid a whole bunch extra for that or didn't get paid extra for it at all, that means something to you. 
That engenders loyalty, and that's good for both the company and the employee. And it's something that seems to have become a lost art for the most part in large companies. I mean, hospitals mm-hmm. went from doing this everywhere I've ever worked to now they can't afford to to give anyone a movie ticket or anything else. And it's like that's like that's what the thing's going to break the budget. And then they wonder why they can't retain employees. And so, right. you know, you can pay people less ultimately if they feel like they're truly valued. Yeah. And that might be something as simple as, oh, no, you're not working two months from now. That's your birthday. We're going to pay you and you're off. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden they're like, man, they paid me and I was off. Sure. You know, these people really care about me. That's one of the largest things I think that has started to go missing in these larger companies and larger hospital companies, you know, going from a, a regular hospital to part of a system because those things get cut. I love how you, I love how you call that a lost art because what we've seen, again, taking this conversation broadly in the economy, you know, increasing levels of income disparity, right? right? A have, have not approach, right? We've even seen capitalists, you know, venture capitalists say, uh, guys like Ray Dalio, right? Say this system is not working. And because of that, we're seeing a rise of what's in the business world of what's known as corporate social responsibility. That's where that's the term dual purpose comes from and trying to get more air quotes, economic alignment. All of that, all of that is a realization that as a business, it makes sense to take very good care of our people, to treat them well. That is good, even though it's a cost, right? Even though it costs us time and money, it is good for them. And ultimately, it's good for business. The best example of this is Costco. Yeah. Right? Everybody loves Costco, right? Costco is the penultimate, penultimate example of this. They pay higher than their competitors, so their costs are higher, right? But their stock price is higher, too. Their company value is higher as well. Why is that? Well, as it turns out, it's really costly to lose employees. It's really costly to be constantly retraining, be retraining yep. them. Yeah. Yeah, and even though it's not a direct cost, your reputation in the market eventually Degrades. results, you know, it's a little bit further down the line, affects your, your actual value of the company. And that's why, you know, from the very beginning, we didn't have those terms at the time, right? We didn't understand those concepts, but that's what we were doing, right? When we say, hey, we're going to get out there and advocate for our profession. We're not going to be anti-anybody. We're just going to be pro-everyone. Right. Um, that's what we were doing. And that's why we're seeing a resurgence of that. And I think that's why... Our group in particular has, and I, you know, there's other groups out there doing it as well, but our group in particular has had a lot of success because we've built into that community and we've done it over time, right? It's not just, a, it's not just like a fad. It's not, you know, ordering pizza for people at lunchtime, right? It's part of our values and we play that out with our actions and people see it. I agree. And I think, you know, an example of that in, within my career, and I've been in healthcare for over 20 years, um, where I've, where I saw how it brought people together and made people loyal and then has gone away. And now people are not loyal and they're going to the place that pays a buck more an hour in hospitals is holiday parties. Right. So, you know, it, it used to be that everyone looked forward to the holiday party, the Christmas party, right? And the Christmas party was a great time. The hospital rented out some hall somewhere. They did a DJ. Everything was free. The employees felt like they were really valued. And the employees who couldn't make it to the holiday party were treated extremely well in the facility that were working during the party, you know, and they rotated. So the next year, and that, that in, you know, it's just, it seems like such a small thing probably cost four or $5,000, which, you know, hospitals lose more money between the cushions and the, in the couches than that. 
on a right. daily basis. Right. Um, and the, but the value that you can't put on a spreadsheet that comes from showing employees or contractors, 1099 contractors, that you actually care enough to plan, execute something that's just for them to thank them at a time when people are being thankful for everything else in their yep. lives really yep. translates to people. It may, it engenders loyalty. Now, not in everybody, obviously some people are still going to go to the place for a dollar sure. or an hour, but the vast majority of people feel loyalty when they feel loyalty has been given to them. And, yep. and that, that's, that can be something as simple as movie tickets, a holiday party, buying pizza for the facility that day. You know, I mean, I do stuff like that all the time. Our company does it all the time. And I think that the yep. reason why, you know, people really are thankful when you do things like that and they think, wow, thanks so much. You know, it adds something to their hard work. And then, you know, a couple of the other things that are important to your employees or your 1099 contractors that work for you, besides wages, besides those things, are time off, right? You don't screw with people's money or their time off. That's like a, you know, a law, I think. And then, you know, the other thing is location, right? So people get to pick all these different things where they want to work and live. And as you know, as well as I know, if you put, if you, if you have a facility that's in a rural area, you're going to struggle to bring someone into that facility more than anywhere else, even if you pay more. And that's a function of what is valuable to an employee location may be valuable to an employee because of access to amenities, their family, their spouse's job can't go where they would like to go. Those things are important. Now that's kind of out of our control as employers, but it is an important thing to think about when you're trying to show loyalty and, and value those people that do come and want to work in your rural area. And then the last part, the last thing is, you know, what's valuable to us as employers, right? And I think what's valuable to us is pretty straightforward. People who are capable of doing the job that you're hiring them for. People who, um, you know, will stay loyal to the company and the patients. And by loyal, I don't mean blind loyalty. I mean, want to work there and plan to stay uh, because turnover is bad. And, you know, lastly, People that have the personality to interact with other personalities. You know, surgeons can be hard personalities to work with sometimes. They just want to do the case. They don't know, they don't care why you don't want to do it or why it might not be safe for the patient. But you have to be able to interact with them in such a way that it's not confrontational, but it's collaborative, right? And we're all on the same team in the operating room, but everything should be looked through the lens of if it was my mother, would I? Indeed. Is it safe? You know, and so. Your goal as a, as, as a company and, your, and what you want to pass on to the per- people who work for you is, to, is that the goal is always to find a way to do the case, right? not to cancel the case. And we don't cancel cases. We only cancel anesthesia. But the goal is to always find a way to do, perform the case for the surgeon and the patient who took their day off work and are in this situation, right? Um, but ultimately, if it's not safe... The goal is to postpone the case and do it later when it's the right thing for the facility, the surgeon, the patient, and you, everyone wins when you do the right thing for the patient when it comes to safety. So that's another thing that we're always looking for. Uh, And so you were going to add something to that with the facility, what people wanted and employers want, employees want. So in regard to what, you know, we, I I mean, it's it's right. Any, any professional service firm, again, lawyers, accountants, uh, anesthesia, whatever. You know, you, you hit it, right? You have to have the skills. 
and you have to have the, the people building relationship skills, right? The ability to drive down onto that a little bit more. The ability to handle difficult conversation is exceedingly rare. Very few people know how to have a psychologically safe conversation to recognize when someone's not really, you're no longer actually talking about the issue. You're talking, you're kind of like yelling past one another, right? So we look for people, especially for people who are going to be like site directors or anesthesia directors, people who know how to recognize when someone's not feeling, when they're just angry, right? You're not actually communicating. You're not actually talking about the substance. To step out of that and say, hey, I'm sorry I miscommunicated. I, you know, I did not mean to do, you know, whatever it is you're saying. Here's what I do mean to do. I want to make sure we have a good outcome. You know, for I just did this just last week. I did this with a surgeon. I said, "Hey, man, I am not trying to cancel your case. I want to do your case. I don't want a bad outcome, though. Here are my concerns. What do you think about them? Is there a piece of information I'm not seeing here?" And he communicated back, and he was like, "Man, you're awesome. Thank you for catching this. You know, yeah, we'll we'll definitely get this guy cleared and make sure everything is in order, right?" And his response, and I was like, "You know, it's not often that I cancel a case or." you know, essentially cancel, delay it. Um, and their surgeon writes back and says, man, thank you so much, right? So having those skills, it's, you just, it's hard to teach. It takes a long time. Um, but people who are service-oriented like that, that is exactly what, what we look for. Oh, yeah, and you have to actually be able to do the job, too. So there's that. Oh, yeah, that, too. <laughs> well, you know, it's so uncommon that whole books are written on this, you know, conversation, this whole thing, Crucial Conversations, yep. Five Dysfunctions of a Team, yep. Two Books That I Love. You know, I've used those communication mm-hmm. theories is what they basically are multiple times. And, you know, look, I'm not perfect. I fail probably a third of the time. But, you know, two thirds of the time I stop myself and remember some of these things I learned from these books, which has probably created a better communication outcome at the end. Right. And, you know, part of it is to keep your cool. Don't escalate while they're escalating, de-escalate. And I think, you know, finding, you know, employees and contractors who can do those things is exceedingly rare because no one's ever taught to do them. You either have to go out and learn it on your own or it comes to you naturally. And there's not a lot of naturals. So you're not going to learn it in your anesthesia training. You're not going to learn it as a nurse or a physician, you're certainly not going to learn it just by working in a hospital. Um, so, you know, it's something mm-hmm. that has to be uh, pursued and cultivated and grown. And it takes a long time for it to expand. It's taken me years to be better at that stuff. And so it takes, it takes a long time to get better at those things so that you're a much more um, effective communicator, yeah. you know, a better communicator yeah, indeed. overall. Indeed. Yeah. Effective. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 